Kia e te whanau. Oh gosh, it's cold in the capital this week. The Wellington wind, oh, it just cuts right through you. Uh, I've got your second bonus content from the Eugenics and Mental Defectives Act episode. Uh, this time it's the unabridged interview with Dr. Hilary Stace. I enjoyed listening back to it as it, it, it gave a good sense of what shaped care for anyone who was deemed different over the last century. On the note of that last episode, uh, there's been it seems to have been received really well, and I'm I'm happy so many people have listened. One thing pointed out was that comparing the mental health system to a leaky home is a flawed metaphor, as it too is a complex situation, and owners can find themselves in an in an awful space despite their best efforts. It's it's a fair point, and I appreciate that too. My apologies for a bad metaphor. So with all the introduction out of the way, let's focus on Dr. Stace and her deep dive. Enjoy. Uh, Hilary, how, how did you get into the sector? Into the sector, in the disability sector, or to eugenics specifically? Into um, sort of disability and academia, it, you know, um, where those two have intersected. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was, a, um, by training, I was a, I did my degree, was in history, and then I trained as a librarian. So I worked at the Turnbull Library for a long time. So I'm interested in New Zealand history. Then I went to work for the Dictionary of New Zealand Biography, uh, which was then in the Department of Internal Affairs, but that was a big project um, gathering essays about New Zealanders. Um, and it was a project went for about 12 years and did several volumes of uh, just basically collecting stories of New Zealanders. And I was um, working there and I just saw a, well, it was interesting seeing the sort of people who were being researched and a lot of them were quite prominent in the, um, sort of in the psychiatric health, that sort of era, or um, all, all sorts of those sort of uh, prominent in, in um, health policy or government. And there was this thread of ideas that were um, quite, well, I did find that, realise the name for them was eugenics, but it was quite widespread about some of these people like Truby King, who founded Blanket, Theodore Gray, who was one of the very first um, people who ran our mental hospitals. Um, they really had these quite strange beliefs. And at the same time, I did have uh, various family members who were having... Um, with various impairments and so we're having interacting with the systems with the school system and um, disability support systems and yet we were I was reading about these people who were had these you know views they were sort of extreme neoliberalism today but they're also were about people not being equally valuable and um, I remember at the Turnbull Library, they had this collection of a uh, field collection who was he was, a, he was a politician from about over 100 years ago. And he'd, I think it was his, his collection of leaflets. And there was this one called The Fertility of the Unfit, which was published in 1905 by a very prominent politician and um, doctor. He was very influential in, in public health and various other yeah. things. And, in, in Wellington and New Zealand and his booklet that I was sort of reading as I was shelving all these things um, as librarians do it was all about it was quite horrific about that there were certain groups of people who really should have 
you know, be, be forced, have forced sterilization basically because they had all these terribly hereditary conditions. And yet this wasn't, this wasn't, um, you know, this, these ideas were becoming mainstream. So, you know, there was a story there that hadn't really been researched or addressed. And what was the reaction from your colleagues and, and peers when you were saying, hey, I've, I've, I'm spotting all these red flags. Um, you know, is, is anyone else interested in this? You know, what, there were a few. There, yeah, there were, yeah, there was a few academics around the place who were sort of getting interested in some of these ideas from all sorts of their own research. Um, because I mean, it was right from the early 20th century right through sort of for a few decades. There was quite a lot. I mean, it was a whole lot of that stuff. A homophobia. Everything was the anti-racist stuff, the anti-Chinese stuff. So there were people picking out bits of the story um, from various sides. And when I was at, um, I went into the masters in, um, in the nineties and I did it on, um, as I did a research paper on eugenics and the support of women's groups for it. Um, and yeah, there's been there have been some historians working in the area of welfare who've sort of touched on it, but the eugenics in New Zealand has been quite a quite an invisible area, really. Interesting. Uh, and was there a particular part of the conversation that was happening in the period that stood out to you? Was it you know like the 1905? um sort of treatise or you know was what was the sort of the big one that makes you think oh, wow um this was awful well it was awful but it was i mean because i was i i'd been you know not learning about new zealand history and all the theories about um you know colonization and why people came to new zealand and that whole idea that they came from britain and europe for this you know, for this better life, um, you know, away from the class system, away from the overcrowded, away from the workhouses, all that sort of stuff that they were leaving behind. Um, and they, but they were very suspicious of not welcoming at all of people who were not like that. So people who had any sort of, um, any sort of disability, they were, you know, very, there was all that horrible stuff against the Chinese, you know, was the poll tax, the Chinese history. I mean, they've had, they've had a century of discrimination um, in New Zealand as an immigrant group, which is, which is really interesting. And I think Helen Clark did a, a, an apology, an official apology about 20 years ago. So, you know, we've had discrimination against certain groups. And because it was sort of, there weren't many support systems for people who who really couldn't fend for themselves one reason or another they um they were they were seen as a as a huge burden on society and it was also that time of you know darwin's theories which he'd done on plants and animals people were applying that to humans so that idea of fit fit being the survival of the fittest and the fittest were the worthy ones. So anybody who was unfit, as it were, and that became through academics, uh, medical people, 
and this was ideas that were, that were coming through the US and, the, and, and Britain and Europe. So these people who were the unfit, who were the burdens, and they could be anything from people who were poor, um, you know, all, had all sorts of things, and there's that list uh, in um, the fertility of the infant, I think it lists the types of people they are, and then in the mental defectives list, they're actually listed as, a, as categories to be surveilled. So yeah, it was just this whole thing that there, there was this class of people who were us, who were, you know, who were the white people, who were, you know, the middle classes, or even, you know, the, the ones who were the worthy. <laughs> and then there were the those who were considered, you know, the ones who were, who were also, the other thing about it is they were all, the, the population rate of these so-called worthy middle-class white people was going down at that time, whereas the others were seen as breeding too fast. So there was all this, you know, population of the wrong types of people were having, were having children. And a lot of those things from the misinterpretation of Darwinism what Darwin's theory is that a lot of those things were inherited. So things like poverty were inherited, or you know, all sorts of things they they assumed criminality was inherited. You know, so they all those ideas that there were some people who were just born bad, and born would be burdens. And not only that, if they were breeding so fast, they would pollute the fit. The fit, you know. So, um, and it's interesting at the same time, you know, there was, they didn't seem to have, the assumption also was that, that Maori who were seen as that sort of noble, the noble savage, they were just um, naturally um, dying out. So they weren't seen as a threat at that time. It was definitely the people who had, um, well, things that they could see. And so it was, it was physical disability, it was impairment, it was, uh, various types of mental illnesses, addiction, especially alcohol was a really big, you know, really big baddie for those, for that era. Um, so yes, it's just interesting. There was, and so our, the, 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 the white, the wealthy white academic, religious, um, government politician class were seen as the worthy ones and they could encourage the middle-class white nice families to have more children so they did things like they they set up the St Helens hospitals which was making it better for the working class middle class respectable families to have more children but at the same time there was this definite the sort who we who were breeding too fast and had to be controlled and so um the um chapel who wrote fertility of the unfit his he quite blatantly had wrote this whole book about booklet about it had they had to have basically had to have forced sterilization that was the answer and he got incredible support in New Zealand and it was published overseas as well um and just, <laughs> oh, sorry that's just a bit of a scene setting but you know those ideas had been bubbling away for a few decades through the medical schools and various other places as well so they weren't new no um and just to give us some more uh, context, looking beyond the academics, uh, let's say I'm someone in the late 19th century um, with psychological differences or, or, or mental illness, um, 
what sort of care can I expect to get? Where, what sort of place am I being put in? Um, you know, what, what, what would actually happen? Probably you, those big, the big asylums, as they were called then, um, which were huge, like, you know, places like Porirua, were big farms. So they were big farm institutions. There was Seacliff that Truby King was in charge of down in Dunedin. Um, there were these, so they were these, these huge asylums, which you could be sent to by certain, you know, somebody could, could send you there, either a, probably not so much a family member, but as somebody in authority could send you there. And your chances of getting out were sort of minimal, really. So you'd be in this big farm and be a, a worker in a big, this, this big farm asylum place, you know, huge, 800 so people. And it'd be its own community, but your chances of actually getting out into normal society would probably be minimal. Um, and that was being seen as the right and proper thing, that there was this whole lot of people who had to be segregated. But yeah, they weren't so far. I mean, the whole lots of groups were put together. So it could be just people who were old, you know, who could be having dementia. It could be young disabled children. It could be all sorts of people. You know, a whole range would be in this huge, big, um, these huge, big um, asylums, which are still there. The remnants of them are still, you can still see a lot of them, like the Poirot has still got a, they've, they've saved one of their villas as a sort of a museum, but huge, huge places. And out of curiosity, do we have any accounts from that period of, of what actually happened when people were on the inside? Oh, there's a few. There, there are things like um, the registers, the um, which would give a diagnosis and all sorts of, you know, things that we wouldn't really words and diagnoses we wouldn't recognise today. Yeah. Um, but they could be anything, you know, anything. And postnatal depression was quite a common one, but yeah. it wasn't called that. Um, just all, all sorts, and also they were used. You know, if you had a quite a difficult family member, particularly if they were female, it would be a place that you could put them and forget about them. Um, but yes, any, any, just any sort of person who was seen as a threat to nice society, really, uh, or there wasn't any sufficient, because also there would be, there were not, uh, there was no social welfare system as such. So there was no, to support people like that was on, a few charitable aid societies and family members, not only did family members often um, not have, you know, have means of support, but also having a person, so-called one of these people, one of the unfit in their family, you know, mental defective was quite a common umbrella term. In your family was actually seen as you, you know, a sign that your whole the genes, the genetic makeup of your family was suspect. So you didn't, if you didn't want people like that, you wouldn't admit to them. So that's why um, a lot of uh, families sent the family member, or you know, a local doctor sent somebody like that. And I mean, Seacliff had. Uh, I don't know if you know the story of Seacliff. They had a big fire in about the 1930s of, of their women's block, and they just yeah. a whole lot of women just were just you know locked up and killed in the fire like that. And you know, virtually their stories are unknown. Mm. You know, they were they were faceless people, and also, I mean, until relatively recently, like in you know, not 
in recent decades, a lot of those people who died were actually, their bodies were given to the medical school with no ideas of consent or anything like that. You know, that it was a second, definitely a second class person. So yeah. you, didn't, you didn't deserve rights. You deserved some sort of minimal level of care, but you had to be kept away. Yeah. You know, locked away and not mentioned and heard about. So, yeah, it depends. I mean, some people were, you know, if you'd been, say, crippled in, or physically um, caused, you know, had a mind disaster and you're, and you're a mind, you know, you're, and you're physically disabled, you could be seen as a, somebody who could, um, you know, be a worthy recipient of charity, you know, so there was a charity model. So that was a sort of a work, because they'd been doing, you know, it wasn't something hereditary, it was just basically something that was an accident, but there was no sort of form of accident compensation. So, but, but it was okay to, they would probably get a little bit of charitable aid to stay um, in the community if they had enough family support. I'd, I'd be interested, sorry. sorry. Uh, I'd, I'd be, I'd, I really like that you brought up um, charity and, you know, some people being seen as deserving um, because I'm, I'd be interested um, to hear how uh, the likes of World War I um, veterans were, you know, what we know as PTSD now is, or, you know, shell shock back then, were treated differently com compared to those um, already um, with yeah. challenges. Effectively, you know, the, 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 the worthy disabled person. Um, you know, can you give us a bit of an idea on that? Yeah, well, um, there was this idea of before the, before the war, um, and I'm not sure about the South African War, but, you know, before the First World War, there was this idea that some people who were mentally defective or otherwise, you know, defective were habitable, which meant if they had the proper training, they could be possibly be employable in sort of manual or low-skilled work. Uh, and that often applied, you know, to some degrees like um, blind people or, you know, but those people who, who, were, who could be trained up to be the workers, the servants for everyone else. So that was, they were, habitat, they were habilitable. Then the, the, and then one of the things about the whole, the Truby King thing was, um, you know, his Plunkett was founded about 1907. And the idea that if there was another big war, there weren't enough of these fit citizens to fight it, you know, to fight for the empire. So that's why Truby King really pushed the whole thing about scientific mothering, to teach mothers, you know, because they wouldn't know it for themselves, teach mothers how to do the proper mothering, the proper very rigid feeding and all that, the rigid parent, the rigid mothering to make, to, to, to um, so they could grow the next little um, generation. And so by the time the First World War came along, there were these a lot more, you know, there was a <laughs> people who were sent off to war uh, who, who um, I mean, they were, they were still quite shocked at the poor, some of the poor state of, of people going to war because, you know, New Zealand was a very unequal society and a lot of, there was still a lot of poverty and, you know, poor nutrition and a lot of that. Anyhow, so they went to war and some of them came and there was, you know, a huge death toll, about the same as in the flu epidemic when they came back at 1980, about 9,000 or something, I think. Anyhow, whatever it is, there was a quite a lot of death anyhow, but people did come back with these injuries like being blinded at Gallipoli 
or losing a leg or something like that. So they were seen that idea that, you know, they weren't defective to start with, but but they could be rehabilitated. So they could be made fit again through through various interventions and skills. So they there was a big idea, this idea of rehabilitation, which is still very very, I mean, that's a current news, you know, current idea that if you're injured, you can be rehabilitated into something. So I think that definitely um, there was definitely a change from for the war veterans, and then when the people like some of the, like I think I'm um, Clutha McKenzie, I think his father was a cabinet minister. So there were these people who were going to war and getting injured. He was, I think, he was blinded at Gallipoli. So he came back blind, but he was not going to be, you know, he was still from the influential, powerful families. So he then um, set up a lot of um, organisations that became um, the Blind Foundation and set up work things. So there was a different a different idea for those people, but there was still a lot of discrimination. For example, the to get your war pension or to register, whatever, the, you had to, in Wellington, you had to go to the old government building, which was where all the government departments were, but you had to be on, it was on the first floor. So, you, you know, <laughs> I don't know how people in wheelchairs got up there because there was no lift. So there was a lot of what we call ableism was just all through that system as well. And I imagine there'd be quite a lot of, pat, you know, quite patronizing attitudes. We set up the war veterans homes came from that era and, I think the last had just been um, closed in the last few years, but that was sort of like many institutions for people who've been wounded in war, but they don't go to the other the other institutions, unless, of course, they'd had shell shock and had quite serious mental illness, in which case they will probably go to the other the other the bigger mental hospitals or asylums. So, you know, there was all sorts of classification that was going on about how worthy you are and how you should be surveilled and by the state and what state welfare you should you could be entitled to, or you know, a lot of a lots of they were really keen on on um, taxonomy, you know, putting people into categories and saying that person's in that category, so therefore they go to that institution. They can have that much support. Yeah. You know, it's like the, the the welfare system is nothing new. You know, this is where our welfare system came mm. from. Um, out, out of curiosity, uh, with the Mental Defectives Act of, of mm. 1911, then I think the Amendment Act in 28, yeah. um, what did that mean for those with physical or psych- psychological challenges? Um, you know, did it massively expand the amount of people that were being put into the system. Um, I knew there was sort of, you know, bureaucratic reform, um, but what did it actually mean for um, the, the person at the bottom of society um, sort of struggling along? Yeah, well, there were those categories. The Mental Defectives Act set out these various categories, um, six different categories, and I just can't remember them offhand, but, you know, you've probably seen the act that they were idiots and imbeciles and epileptics, you know, yes. it was seen as a terrible thing to have. A social defective was added in the amendment in 28, yeah. so I remember that. So, so um, and that actually did follow on, too, from the 1905 book, you know, so that was actually putting into law some of those ideas. 
And also that was an international because the, the, in Britain there was almost exactly the same act at the same era. So there was, you know, this was something that was, again, New Zealand was never isolated from the world. Always these ideas were happening. And in the US, the US went an awful lot further with um, compulsory sterilization. Um, so, what, sorry, what was your question? <laughs> Effectively, what did the uh, MDA mean for, you know, people actually in the system or people that were going to be put into the system? Oh, well, well, I guess what it meant is that there, there were more different places to send them to. So there were the residential schools for the mentally defective girls and boys, which are boarding schools. And that was in the education system. But some people went to ones that were under the, what was the department called? I mean, the, the forerunner of the health department, you know, the mental, you know, they were sent to ones which were specifically for um, so-called mentally defective people. So there were different institutions residential schools, farms, schools, farm places for whatever you've been, whatever you were labelled as. Mm. And at that time also, IQ testing, IQ testing came in about the First World War as a very new, like eugenics, eugenics was seen as a cutting edge science, cutting edge science, and then IQ testing was. So you came in with these American, mostly American ideas of IQ testing that was seen as cutting edge science. So there was one test that you could do to decide you know where where people could go based based on you know IQ testing and various other things other types of surveillance including school um, school inspectors all sorts mm. so what it did is it actually enabled a whole lot of different institutions to start you know start start happening so that there were different options to send people around the country, regard, you know, depending on what somebody decided was there would be appropriate. I mean, all of them were to lock away from society. Some of them were permanent, some were maybe more temporary, but they all, the purpose was to segregate. And because the big fear was again, still of the, the this, you know, these, these people were breeding faster and they would pollute the fit, the fit face, the, the nice white people, the nice white, you know, so you had to be kept away because they were all seen. Morality was tied in with all this quite um, a lot too. So the morality, that morality and mental defect, defect all went mm. together. You know, there was no distinction. And you were, particularly that idea that the males and females with so-called mental, mental defect of some kind were, you know, being terribly promiscuous all the time. That was just assumed, you know. Mm. So, um, and having large families and, you know, illegitimate children and the assumptions, you can still see remnants in it in our, in our, of some politicians' attitudes to welfare, to beneficiaries. It's still there. Terrible assumptions about, about um, people. Yeah. As a proud dole bludger and mental defective, I can confirm um, I am extremely promiscuous and <laughs> have about 19 criminal children. Um, any pickpocket you see on the Wellington waterfront, that's one of mine. Um, um, but seriously, though, I'd be interested to know. Um, and and you, you highlighted that, you know, we still have some politicians that, you know, still refer to some pretty 
outdated ideas. Um, but even though the legal ability to um, sterilise individuals sort of didn't make it through the 28th Amendment Act, it, it got dropped at the last moment. Um, I'm interested to know uh, what did the 28th Amendment Act and the eugenics movement set up for the following decades? Um, I think yeah. we... They'd have, to, they'd have two of those uh, committees of inquiry in the 20s, which had, you know, conflated mental defect and, you know, moral offending. So um, they'd have two of those. And then out of that came the 1928 Amendment Act. And Theodore Gray, again, who was who was probably head of, I forget all their titles, but he was, you know, the, basically the Director General of Health. That was basically his, he was in charge of it all. He was very, very keen on, on sterilisation. He was seen as a big reformer in mental, um, in, in the institutions because he liked the villas, you know, rather than the big two-storey, multi-storey asylums, he liked villas. And he thought, oh, that was so nice for people. You know, you can have lots and lots of people all in these villas with nice grounds. Um, so, but, but you know, I, my, my theory from researching Peter Fraser and Peter Fraser's family and Janet Fraser, his wife, who's one of my research areas, is that Peter Fraser was very anti-sterilization. He was the leader of the Labour Party in opposition, just a small party at that time. But he had a lot of mental illness in his own family in Scotland. And he and people like uh, Mother Suzanne O'Bear were, were just naturally more inclusive in their attitudes and they didn't discriminate against people because of disability or mental illness. So Peter Fraser fought, fought against that. And so sterilization didn't, didn't get through that. Although in other countries like in the US that, that was, became the norm after that. But what they did, what Theodore Gray did get out of it was Templeton, the first, um, the first specifically what we later called psychopedic hospitals, which were institutions specifically for children who were considered either you know some way morally defective so they could be um, physically or they could have had intellectual disability something like autism which of course wasn't a diagnosis for decades but you know some kind of neurodiversity learning disability anything that was I mean I know kids who were families talk about a child who, who, who was hungry in the depression you know, um, stole a pie and was sent up to Templeton for their whole life, you know. Um, so it was, so he did get that and he personally signed the first, um, the first entrance. So that was our first big um, psychopedic hospital. And we had, we ended up with four of those big, big institutions for children. And uh, you, the assumption was that children would be sent there from like Templeton, they'd usually be sent by two or three. I've got examples of people who were sent as you know, three-year-olds, never really to come out and, and not really for their families to know about them either. So they were taken away in these big institutions and didn't start closing. Templeton closed about 1997-8. Kimberley, the last one, didn't close until 2006. So there was people who lived and died and, the, and their lives were probably quite miserable and short mostly. So we talk about lots of unmarked graves around one of those institutions. It is another story that should be investigated, hopefully by the Royal Commission. But, you know, there's, we know that there's every institution 
psychopedic, psychiatric hospital and psychopedic institution will have unmarked graves around because the record keeping was so appalling, if at all. Um, so that, yeah, so the, mainly the 1928 set up Templeton, which was the first big one that didn't close until, what was that, how many years, 70 years, mm. oh, 30, how many, 60 years later, 1998, yeah, so it was a long time for, to have these big institutions, and then even when deinstitutionalization happened, people who were the survivors of these, who are mainly older people by then, older, mostly old, a lot of older men, some who didn't use words to communicate or had lost their use of words. Uh, they went into what are called group homes, but they still live, a lot of them still live pretty limited lives um, in, in group homes, which can still be seen as little mini institutions. You know, their participation in the community can be quite minimal. Yeah. But anyhow, that's that's modern history. So yeah, that's what happened. We, they didn't get institute. They didn't get sterilisation. But we also have lots and lots of um, anecdotal stories of um, uh, um, uh, well, unconsented but mm -hmm. undocumented sterilisations. You know, people would go on for appendix operations and various things, um, and eventually they'd find out that that was a sterilisation operation. Oh. I've got a question that I've been grappling with um, and I feel like it's a simple one, but, you know, I, I feel, you know, after this last uh, half an hour of conversation, you know, I don't know about you, but I, you feel pretty depressed after, after hearing about this, but simply did it have to be like this? Um, mm -hmm. Were there other methods and, and systems of supporting people that were different that existed at the time. I know that, you know, it's very easy for us to judge based on our modern standards, but, you know, obviously you've got Peter Fraser, you've got the Frasers being, um, you know, anti-eugenics um, as well as Suzanne or Bert. Um, but yeah, were there alternative systems that we could have adopted if we, if we had actually wanted to provide better lives for people? It's not really my, I mean, they're probably, I mean, I don't know what there were in various countries. I think a lot of, um, I mean, we're talking about the so-called westernized countries, which were very similar, uh, Europe, Britain, US, where all this was quite commonplace around there. I'm sure it was quite different in smaller societies, maybe, maybe, um, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I'm, I don't know about other societies. Mm. I think anywhere that there was any sort of that Christian missionary influence, when you got that, you probably got a lot of this um, worthy, unworthy, deserving poor, undeserving poor sort of rhetoric. Um, of course there were. I mean, that's the actual question, how do you do it better, is what the Royal Commission on Historic Abuse is also grappling with in their work. Uh, and how do you have a better system of support for people? Um, and I mean, there's various, I don't know if you, not, if you know things like um, Manafakaha, which is a whole new disability support system that's being trialed, more than trialed, sort of demonstrated out of Mid Central, Palmerston North, which is a much more a way of, of people deciding 
people and families deciding for themselves what support they need. And it comes under that rights framework. Well, we call it in New Zealand Enabling Good Lives, which is sort of a rights-based framework that has developed um, following the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, with, with this whole Enabling Good Lives has been developed. The principles have been developed by disabled people themselves, and they're trying to operation, operationalize them through things like mana whakaha, which is, um, you know, that idea that people people know for themselves what support they need and will, will uh, can, and if they get it, then that will be wonderful. But it doesn't quite work like that because there's not a trained workforce. Um, there's not, a, there's probably more people seeking support. Once you have a good system, the more people you, who seek support, um, you know, more people want it than you probably estimate <laughs> because if you have something that works, people want it, fair enough. Yeah. Um, yes, so it is, again, people around the world are struggling with, governments and policy people are struggling with, and it's an education. Like, you basically, there was a hundred years of people, disabled people, very whatever you use that umbrella term, who were denied access to education. So, you know, the idea is families were, say, were told, oh, you know, you said, they said, for the best, you'll take your three-year-old with Down syndrome or whatever, and it'll be for the best, and they'll have a lovely time, and they'll have education, and they'll have friends, and they'll have, well, the education, you know, didn't happen. And even though people like, you know, the Fraser government was really hot on education for everybody, because that group that didn't have access to education, so, um, and there's still, you know, places like IHC Advocacy are still taking cases through the Human Rights Review Tribunal against the Ministry of Education because so many people are denied education. Kids, you know, they go to the families, go to the local school and the local says, oh, well, we can't really enroll you. You don't have the right support. Blah, blah, blah. So, you know, there's like, issues are there. What I see is that we have this huge um, ableism, is this huge attitudinal barrier, which is basically you know, discrimination like racism, but it has its roots in eugenics. So there are a lot of these ideas still underneath that people should, certain groups of people don't really deserve human rights. They don't really deserve to be included in society. They don't really, deserve access to education because they are less valuable uh, and that's all a burden on the state so every time you know there's sort of words you can hear from politicians anybody someone talks about breeding it's a eugenic flag um, special is a eugenic flag somebody is special it means they they can be excluded and that's fine we'll just call them special um, you know there's a certain yeah, so it's it's a big, big issue today. But actually, now we have the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities as a guide, and we have a lot more stroppy people, disabled people themselves, who've come through, um, you know, disability rights movements. And there's things like the neurodiversity movement, which is very, very active, and doing, you know, doing all the stuff for themselves. So don't need people like me to be advocates, you know, that... People themselves are doing are doing all that, are leading it all. Yeah. But 
but but you know there are big issues with workforce financial support the whole beneficiary system you know if you live on um supported living like my son does well he lives with me but you can hardly survive on a supported living benefit you know it's tough and so if you're only seen as worthy of having a certain amount that's of your financial you're not worthwhile actually investing as a human being to live properly you know I've been always been a supporter of the UBI but not quite sure how you'd again roll it out but you know those things that people if you start from the framework that every human is equally human and then how do we and every human has equal rights to participate in the, the community and their families in the society um you know then how do you do it you don't start or well, some people are less worthy and also i mean i haven't even started on um you know, the intersection of colonization, racism, and eugenics, you know, there's a whole nother whole story there. <laughs> so, you know, just Māori are disproportionately in all the institutions, because Māori did, the, the, the Māori race didn't die out in the 1990s. I mean, the 1890s, when they were supposed to, you know, and so they got caught up in all that uh, stuff worse. So all the institutions uh, were disproportionately full of Maori boys a lot, but yeah, young Maori because they didn't fit the ideas of the white, the white middle classes, you know what they considered valuable. So we're still reaping all that, you know. That's why we've got, you know, gangs and you know all the kids who are sent to boys and girls homes, you know, in recent times. Um, yeah, so we're still reaping that discrepancy. Yeah. Um... <laughs> I've obviously, as I highlighted it earlier, but this has been pretty heavy. Um, after you've been, you know, talking or thinking or wor- or working in this this sort of historical side of things, um, is there anything that gives you hope? Well, you know, as a historian, you look back to look for the future, so. Things were awful, a whole lot worse 100 years ago. If my little Reese guy is watching the cricket, my son, who's in his 30s, mm. if he was born even 10 years earlier, the pressure on me to send him somewhere would have been huge. Yeah. As it happened, he went to a school. I mean, a lot of it was luck. I talk about love and luck as an idea that he was, you know, you, for good outcomes, you need somebody, somebody there as your advocate to love you and to fight for you and the luck that the right people and support turn up at the right time. So he just had this really great school he went to who would just said, oh, of course, everybody does everything. They all go on school camps right through his schooling. Then he got um, post, he's got, he's had part-time jobs because of that, that attitude. So, but, but, so that's, I mean, so things are getting better. People's expectations rise all the time and it's the young people who are the young self-advocates now people who well self-advocacy is a term particularly for um learning disability or intellectual disability there's a self-advocacy movement that's really started going in the the 1980s and we've got people like sir robert martin who was the who's i don't know if you know him but he's amazing he's he grew up in institutions he was our first um, person with learning disability to get a knighthood. He now runs a UN com- um, committee, you know, so he's 
he's still a person with learning disability, but he's really wise, really, and he's huge money around the world because he's in here. So there's people like him who are providing great role models. There's things like the neurodiversity movement, which, I mean, they don't need me. They're everywhere. Things like ASAN, which is, well, it's just, just the, I don't know if you know ASAN, it's the American society, basically. Of, they started of Aspies, but actually they're a huge movement. And that's all over, all over the world, all over New Zealand. Yeah. Um, uh, and yeah, I mean, but I've, you know, you also take the long game as a historian. So I've, ever since the, I started hearing about these things, you know, back in the 80s when I first got into this area, we've been wanting a Royal Commission, you know, we needed an inquiry. So you battle that, battle that, battle that. And, you know, the last government said, no way, there's no problem. You know, we've all, it's all been dealt with, it's all in the past, load of rubbish. Jacinda said in 2016, when we, if we get into power, we will have a Royal Commission. So we've got a Royal Commission. You just have to wait. You have to get, you have to be advocating and keeping on and keeping on and keeping on. And the Royal Commission is not perfect. It's got a whole lot of issues, but it can still be involved as a sort of a critical friend, <laughs> critical, critical friend. Um, and they have a huge power to, of their recommendations. And what I really pushed for, because as a historian, I always seen disability is invisible in our history. You don't, in the history, in the past histories, you don't see a disability chapter in any of our comprehensive histories of New Zealand. So my thing is I'm really pushing for is a good disability archive, which actually has people's stories collected. We go around people's garages and the advocates who are now, you know, some of them are dying off. Some of those older people who've been fighting for decades where are your records? Where are your stories? We'll keep them, we'll honor them, we'll make school resources and exhibitions. Uh, we'll collect them and preserve them in a very professional way with some co governance with disabled people, you know, all the right stuff and the latest archival theory. So that's, that's really my battle now. Other people are doing the active stuff for better support and services. I want the history made visible. <laughs> so that's my era. Fantastic. And I just thought about it. I don't think what people think. <laughs> I talk too much, you see. That's all right. The best but you did don't. ask. Yeah. <laughs> um, out of curiosity, if uh, somebody walks away with one piece of information from this, um, this discussion about uh, the history of, of, of disability sort of um, sort of abuse and, and just failure, um, what would that one piece of information be? I think we all individually as a society have to um, really examine our own ableism and unconscious bias about ableism because any of this just happened because of it. So, you know, how we, a lot of people now are, you know, there's a big push to actually examine your, you know, your unconscious bias about racism, which is fair enough, but something about ableism as well. So if, when you're looking at history, whose voices aren't there? Who's not there? Who do we not hearing about? You know, why were the, you know, things like, why were the Lake Alice boys locked up in Lake Alice and given an anesthetized uh, ECT? Why, you know, why did these happen? So I think 
if you just if everybody just examines your own, our own ableism and um, uses that lens of realization to see what is invisible, what do I need to learn about our history and our country and you know how we treat other people you know the whole basic ethical principle treat other people as you would like to be treated basics common ethical principle for all cultures um so i reckon yeah i think addressing ableism would, would go a long way <laughs>